Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of HHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of HHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the article, National Trends in Prescription Drug Expenditures and Projections for 2022, which was recently published on HHP.org. Our guests are Dr. Eric Tishy, Vice Chair, Pharmacy Supply Solution, Supply Chain Management Office at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Neelay Shah, Managing Director, Health Analytics and Innovation at Delta Airlines. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining us this morning. Eric and Neelay, before we jump into the findings of the 2021 expenditures report, I'd like to talk about your roles because I think you bring unique perspectives to the drug expenditures issue. And Neelay, let's start with you. What do you do at Delta Airlines? Thanks, Dan, and thanks for inviting me on this podcast. So I am part of a newly formed group at Delta Airlines called Global Health and Wellbeing. And this was envisioned during the pandemic to really sort of think about where health and well-being is going to become of greater importance even beyond COVID. And so this group started a little over a year ago. Um, and our role is to sort of how do we bring better experiences, outcomes, and affordability for employees at Delta Airlines. Now, going forward, as business travel comes back, we are also going to be focusing on customers and also communities more broadly. But our initial focus is how do we make healthcare ultimately work for employees of Delta Airlines? What did you do before joining Delta Airlines that sort of positioned you for this role? Prior to joining Delta Airlines, I was at Mayo Clinic for 16 years. And for the last few years, I led the Division of Healthcare Delivery Research at Mayo Clinic. And as part of my role there, I did a lot of federally funded research. One of them was leading something called a CERCI, which was funded by the Food and Drug Administration. So we partnered a lot with the FDA and sort of generating evidence around drugs, as well as broader policy issues around drug, as well as digital health-related devices. On the other side of it, on the Mayo Clinic side, really focused on healthcare delivery and evaluating models of healthcare delivery, what worked and in what context and for whom. And so the whole idea here, and partly why I ended up at Delta Airlines, was how do you take a different lens to those same problems from an employer perspective and actually enable better policy decisions for the ultimate payer. Employers pay a huge proportion of healthcare-related spending in this country. So how do we get employers to better leverage those resources to have the greatest value for employees? Got it. Eric, what about you? Yes, I'm uh, responsible for the pharmaceutical supply chain for Mayo Clinic, and that entails ensuring that Mayo Clinic has access to pharmaceuticals for our patients and our employees. I also have a team that manages the pharmaceutical formulary, and then we work closely with finance to help with our budget projections for the organization. So those are kind of the main roles that I have with pharmaceuticals at Mayo. So clearly with both of you, the findings of the drug expenditures report and the forecasting uh, really do play an important role in what you do on a, on a daily basis. 
Eric, can you let's start with a high level summary of the 2021 expenditures report? What did the team find? So at a high level, we found that expenditures for drugs overall in healthcare in the United States grew by 7.7%, and they totaled $576 billion in 2021. Hospital spending accounted for almost $40 billion of that, which is a little over 8%. And we expect that that spending is going to increase between 7 and 9% in 2022. Clinics were responsible for about $105 million of that spending, and that also increased by nearly 8% compared to 2020. And we expect that spending to grow in the coming years as well. A lot of the spending was driven this year and last year by COVID. As the waves of COVID affected organizations, we saw increased expenditures. Many healthcare organizations were were very busy throughout the whole year, either taking care of patients with COVID or they were sort of busy catching up with all the other care. And so that kept volume very high and kept utilization high. One of the biggest drivers for expenditures is just one COVID therapy, remdesivir. It's an antiviral medication that's used to treat COVID. We use it both in the outpatient setting and the inpatient setting. And that was the number one expenditure for hospitals. It actually accounted for almost 10% of total hospital spending on pharmaceuticals. And other things that we saw that were interesting is that biosimilars really took off and are starting to blunt expenditures in certain areas. So, Neely, you didn't serve on the author team that did the primary analysis of the data for the drug expenditures report. But as you took a step back and looked at it, as you prepared the editorial that you wrote to accompany it, what were your impressions of the the findings this year? I think there were some unique findings. I think one of the things that obviously Eric mentioned was specifically focused on COVID-related costs. But one of the key areas of focus for us is thinking about affordability from an employee and an employer perspective. And the thing that jumped out was the relative importance of treatments for chronic diseases. So these are routine outpatient small molecule treatments for specifically for diabetes and atrial fibrillation. And the relative importance of those drugs in terms of growth in spending overall. And so diabetes drugs themselves were nine of the top 25 highest spent drugs overall and accounted for 11% of total spending. So the reason that's important is affects a lot greater population, right? Something like diabetes or atrial fibrillation than what we had seen historically, where it's primarily biologicals or specialty drugs, which are really high cost, but impact a smaller proportion of population. This year, it really jumped out where, where there's continued spending, obviously, for specialty drugs, but also the role of sort of drugs associated with common chronic conditions and the increase in spending associated with those drugs. So, so Eric, that's a lead into another question that, that I had. And, and, and Neela, it's certainly like your perspectives on this as well. You both mentioned, Neela, you mentioned small molecules and you also mentioned biologics. Eric, you made reference before to biosimilars as well. And it appears that there really were effects of generic drugs, small molecule generic drugs, as well as biosimilars on the expenditures in the the past year. 
Eric, can you talk about that a bit more? Yes. A lot of the effect of biosimilars has so far been occurring in more of the hospital and the clinic setting because the drugs that have become biosimilar are mainly used to treat inflammatory conditions or cancer. And these are drugs that are infused in hospitals or they might be injected into a patient. Those are affecting overall expenditures. However, I think patients at this point are not necessarily seeing the effect because of the way the payer situation works and paying for medical benefits. And one of the interesting things is this year we did see the first approval of a generic insulin product. In the coming year, 2023, the number one expenditure drug, Humira, will actually face biosimilar competition. So I think that's where patients or consumers will start to see changes in, in the expenditures. Neely, same question for you. Impressions on uh, both the, the effects of biosimilars and generic drugs? Yeah, I think what Eric brought up is important, that so far the consumers haven't seen as much of an effect with biosimilars, which is important. There was a, a research project that I was involved with, with that was led by uh, Stacy Dusatzina. And in that project, we found that a significant proportion of people left drugs at the pharmacy because of the out-of-pocket costs associated with them. And this was primarily biologicals and specialty drugs. So it has significant impact on health and well-being of individuals that they are not filling them. So hopefully as costs go down, we can get people filling the drugs that they need to fill for their health and well-being. And the other piece of it is the equity part of it, too. There was just a piece in Kaiser Health News today which showed that 100 million Americans have some level of medical debt, some of it driven by drug costs. And so as we start bringing these costs down, one, it may affect overall well-being through, through debt and affordability for people to fill the drugs that they need. Yeah, that Kaiser Health News piece was impressive that people are either unable to to pay and are uh, in some pace in some cases uh, going on to payment plans where they're accruing uh, interest and penalties using credit cards that are where they're you they're accruing interest and sometimes penalties and also seeking loans from friends and family members to to pay for medical to pay for their medical costs it's it was it was really an incredible piece that was on NPR earlier this morning Eric you made reference earlier to the effects of covid-19 but maybe we can dive into that a little bit more you talked about the the effects of uh, remdesivir but talk more about the overall effects of COVID-19 on drug expenditures in 2021? Well, you know, one of the most interesting effects or impacts on expenditures is that the federal government has paid for the cost of most of the therapies that have been sort of most important over the last 18 months, and those would be the, the vaccines, as well as a lot of the monoclonal antibody treatments. And that has shielded the consumers from the cost of those. It's also shielded employers from those. And that information doesn't show up in our data, but it kind of looms large as what will happen when the public health emergency ends and the government is no longer funding these therapies. And I think the previous conversation we just had about sort of non-adherence driven by cost of therapy, how is that going to play into how COVID is managed going forward? Because COVID therapies have not had that 
sort of issue blocking their use. And that could change when the public health emergency ends. Neely, I would imagine from an employer's perspective that there are a lot of implications there when you think about that shift possibly from government coverage of a lot of these costs to passing it back to the individual and or the employer that uh, there are a lot of implications there to consider. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely critical in being able to access these treatments. For example, Paxlovid has been really helpful for many employees as they try to, you know, manage their symptoms, be able to come back to work sooner for many reasons that there's significant value and the access makes it a lot easier. The greatest risk that, you know, as that burden gets shifted, as employers, we have to be thoughtful about it. What we don't want to do is create inequities, right? So, for example, low-wage workforce, because of the cost of it, if there's significant out-of-pocket cost burden, may not use those treatments and may create greater inequity over time. So, so I think this is going to be an important area for us going forward, especially, as Eric mentioned, um, the public health emergency ends and, and how we manage the cost and accessibility for the workforce. So up till now, we've been talking about the findings, uh, the specific findings around expenditures. But Eric, you also in the article discuss a number of policy options that are under consideration currently. Let's talk about those a bit. Yeah. So as part of the Build Back Better bill and even the sort of skinny down version that is being looked at today, there are provisions in there that are looking at drug expenditures and how to manage those long-term. One of the biggest provisions is one that would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Currently, Medicare is pretty much just a taker of drug prices from the manufacturers, and they don't get involved with the negotiation aspect. That is very controversial because Medicare is the largest buyer of pharmaceuticals, and so they would have very large market power, maybe almost sort of the concern is that there could be too much market power and that would effectively lead to price controls. At the same time, it you know, leaves the government vulnerable uh, being a price taker when there's no negotiation. So that's one of the, the biggest aspects of what is, is being proposed. And then there's other provisions that would limit the rate of increase of drug prices. So while overall drug prices are pretty the rate is low. It was less than 2% for this 2021, you know, well below inflation or consumer price inflation. There are specific drugs that have higher inflation rates, so 7.5% or even 10%. And so there's proposals to limit the rate of increase for some of those specific products. Insulin seems to get an awful lot of uh, attention. Uh, Neelay mentioned before the effects of chronic diseases, and we even heard the president in his State of the Union uh, address uh, call out insulin, for example. Uh, Neelay, what would you add to this discussion? Yeah, I, I think that's obviously a very needed therapy that many people are not able to afford and as a result have bad sequelae, um, be it end up ending up in the emergency rooms or worse. I think the key piece, though, is a little bit broader than that in the sense that on the employer side, um, for employers, the drug spending could be as much as 40% of their total healthcare spending. So there's much greater impact on the employer side than the 
Medicare side. In terms of dollars, obviously, Medicare is higher, but as a proportion of spend, it's a little bit lower. And so I think for employers, that becomes an important issue to sort of manage. So, for example, what Civica is doing with bringing the $35 insulin to market, hopefully by 2024, could have significant impact both for employers, but also for the broader population from an affordability perspective. And similarly, hopefully we can see that with other biosimilars as well in terms of uh, managing spending, both from an out-of-pocket perspective as well as overall spending related to drugs. So, Neelay, following along on that, in your editorial, you specifically discuss some private sector approaches to increasing the affordability of drugs. What were those? Yeah, you know, there's a number of issues. So I think Eric sort of brought up some of the federal policies that are being looked at, but really focused on the Medicare drug spending related issues. There's obviously the private sector issues that also exist. And so what are our challenges there? And there's many different challenges. So one is just general access to drugs. We've not discussed this much, but as we hear about supply chain issues in other industries, similarly, there have been some in the pharmaceutical industry as well in terms of access to generic drugs. And as a result, many of these solutions, the Mark Cuban drug company that's uh, making generics available at 15% plus in terms of relative to the cost of manufacturing, or what Civica is trying to do is making broader access to generic drugs in an affordable way available to people. The main piece is how do we sort of build these different new innovations in with the typical pharmaceutical benefit management approaches, I think will be important because right now they're sort of being brought in as sort of standalone solutions. I think we need to sort of figure out what how do they integrate with the broader pharmacy benefit management programs that are available in the private sector. Got it. So, Eric, what's on the horizon for 2022? Well, for 2022, we're going to see what happens with this transition of COVID therapies. That's that's going to be very interesting. I think we're also getting ready for the launch of some big biosimilars that will impact consumers in In 2023, I think there's a lot of preparation that's going on for those. And then another issue that looms large, and it's it's somewhat fits in that public policy space, which is consumer price inflation. You know, we've seen it's all over the news. Everyone's talking about it. Prices of everything are going up. Pharmaceuticals have actually been one of the sectors where it's been relatively low compared to inflation. And The way inflation kind of works is it it tends to sort of find its way into different sectors of the economy at different points in time. And I think there is some concern that how is that going to impact pharmaceuticals at some point? And that's one of the questions I get frequently. We do have somewhat longer term contracts with with, um, healthcare products and pharmaceuticals. And so I think that's blunting some of those expenses. And then pharmaceuticals aren't as closely affected by the price of fuel and things like that. So that's also helping. But that is something that is looming large. And it's hard to know how to prepare for it because we haven't seen something like this in 40 years, which actually predates the analysis that that has a co-author for. Neelay, what would you add to that? 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a little bit of the unknown going forward is what impact do we expect for this year? One is to make sure the access is there. And then the second piece is the affordability to the cost stay manageable. And, and it's an unknown. And hopefully we are able to manage there. That's where I think having some of these other uh, players that have entered this field, like the Mark Cuban uh, Cost Plus Drug Company or Civica, and others beyond the traditional pharmaceutical companies allow sort of a broader number of participants to sort of enable availability of drugs, especially the common generic drugs that vast majority of people use. The other piece of this is sort of, you know, what impact will that have on sort of development of biosimilars? I think that's a little bit of an unknown because those are more complex to manufacture, oftentimes may require some other approaches that maybe more difficult to access in the current economy. So the cost of those may not go down as much as one might want them to, but that's an unknown as Eric was alluding to. Before we go, I'd like to go into one other area with you. We've been talking a lot about the effects of the pandemic on the expenditures for therapeutics that are used to to treat COVID-19 disease. But another side of the pandemic has been the supply chain issues. And in the pharmacy forecast report that is being developed as we speak, one of the questions to the survey respondents was around the issue of whether health systems would be, in fact, willing to pay more for drugs that could be manufactured in the United States to place some safety controls into the system around supply chain. Just like to get both of your impressions on that, if you were answering that forecast survey, what's the likelihood of that? And Eric, from the health system side and the given what you do at Mayo Clinic, what are your thoughts on the likelihood of that? That's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart and uh, is part of my day-to-day role. I will disclose that Mayo Clinic, we are a member of Civica Rx, which Neelay uh, mentioned previously. Um, Civica Rx is a non-for-profit manufacturer of generic drugs. Mayo Clinic was a founding member of that, and we did put up some funds to help get that off the ground. Our objectives there are really to ensure access to the drugs and consistency of supply. And we think that that will overall impact the cost of healthcare by, you know, avoiding price spikes that we see when there's shortages. But it's really more of a, a model of looking at generic drugs like a utility, like electricity and water, where they're very consistent, they're always available, and you might pay a little bit more for that consistency. And it's worth it because of the negative effects that you can have on the business if you can't get those drugs. One of the shortages we're dealing with right now is IV contrast. And so if you if you don't have the contrast, you can't do these tests, which are you know really important to, to healthcare. And so I think there's become a greater appreciation to the importance of just having these because it can, without having some of these drugs, it can shut down your ability to have healthcare operations. So I would say that, yes, we are willing to make those investments. And um, I think it's helpful to have sort of onshoring of products. And it's it's not just being protectionist. I think it's helpful to have diversity of where the supplies are coming from so that if there's a problem in one part of the world, you don't completely lose access to the product. So it's 
it's, um, you know, I think some positive steps are being taken and using different business models like non-for-profit models or public benefit models are really helping move these things forward. Neelay, from a from an employer's perspective, you've made the point that it, ultimately employers really do shoulder a significant amount of the burden. What's your take on that approach? There's two pieces to it. The one piece is the quality side of it too, right? So there have been a number of drugs for hypertension, for example, in the last two years that they found that were manufactured outside the country that had incipients that were cancer-causing and had to, those drugs had to be pulled off the market. So I think one is sort of how do we, does this enable better quality and better oversight of some of these products that consumers get access to? And the flip side, I think from a cost perspective, how high is that cost, right? Is that marginal cost? How does it affect an individual consumer uh, I think will be critical if if it's a significant increase, it increases um, the burden and affordability significantly. It has a different impact than, you know, if it's just sort of a marginal, maybe an extra dollar a month for prescriptions, people may be much more willing to tolerate that, be it from an employer or a consumer perspective. But I think there is obviously a significant potential benefit from a quality perspective. It's just a matter of how high that incremental price increase might be. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Drs. Eric Tishy and Neelay Shah for joining us to discuss the forthcoming AJHP publication, National Trends in Prescription Drug Expenditures and Projections for 2022, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes please visit AJHP.org.